0: friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm only going to read one verse today, verse 4. Hebrews 11, of course, is a list of those who demonstrated the kind of saving faith that is described before and afterwards in Hebrews 10 and 12. And it's a list of men and women of whom the world was not worthy. We're going to study what God is speaking in these passages. We're not going to do one person per Sunday, but. When I read verse 4, the leadoff name in this list, Abel, and I considered what the writer to the Hebrews was saying in this context, I was so utterly struck by this verse, I knew we couldn't go any further. We had to attend to what God is saying in this verse. Hear now God's uh, word in Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're talking about faith, and we're talking about the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. As we just professed in the Westminster Confession of Faith that Our faith is in various degrees, weak or strong. It's often assailed, but it gets the victory because you are the one who gives it. You're the one who sustains it. You're the one who receives it back to yourself in worship. And we plead for those very things in our lives as they're found in the life of Abel. Would you do that by the power of your risen Son, Jesus? Amen. You know, this morning as we studied this verse, I just want to draw out three aspects from the testimony of Abel. All of them are right here in our passage, and they are faith, sacrifice, and commendation. We read those very words in our text. They're right here. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. And we're going to just kind of unpack some of these aspects of the testimony that he gives, beginning with faith. We're talking about Abel. We're talking about the story of Cain and Abel, the uh, third and fourth human beings on this earth. You can find their story in Genesis chapter 4. It's a short story. It's only a couple of paragraphs. Abel, who's featured here, actually has no speaking parts in Genesis chapter 4. We never hear him utter a word, but because of what happens, it is an absolutely infamous story. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain is going to grow up and he's going to become a farmer. Abel grows up and he becomes a shepherd. One day they come to worship God and they bring something from their respective vocations. Cain, he brings something from the field. Abel, he brings something from the flock. They give an offering to God and God favors Abel's offering over Cain and he tells them so. This is utterly Humiliating to Cain, whose offering was not received like his younger brothers, and so he goes away angry. And God meets him in his anger and he speaks to him and he says, Cain, I see what's happening here. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you, but you must master it. Don't let it do this to you. Cain leaves. He doesn't heed the word of the Lord. He begins to nurse this shame and this humiliation. He invites his brother out to a field away from their parents. And when they're there, he rises up and he kills his younger brother, Abel. Eve, who was named as such the mother of all the living, has to do a first in this brave new fallen world. She has to dig a grave and bury her second born son. It's a wild, awful story and it's a story that's truly always bothered me and not simply for the obvious reason that a brother murders another brother. But I'm sure you've had this question about the story of Cain and Abel like I have and that is, why does God accept and favor Abel's offering and not Cain's. Both bring an offering. Why does God show favoritism to the one and not the other? Because surely if God hadn't have done that, if he had received both of those sacrifices the same, then Cain wouldn't have gone away to nurse an envy that led to murder. There's a lot of similarities in Cain and Abel and what they do. Surely both men, when they come to bring a sacrifice, they have the faith that we just heard in chapter 11, verse 3 of Hebrews. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Surely, Cain and Abel, they both believed that. Both of them are there for the worship service, they both attend to it. Both of them bring something from their respective vocation. I mean, Cain, he's a man of the earth, he brings something from his crops and. Abel is a shepherd of the flocks and he brings those things. Later in the law of Moses, God is going to affirm that produce from the land and animals and livestock are both received as worship unto him. So it's not that the one was inferior to the other. So why do you have this blatant favoritism in Genesis chapter 4 and Abel is lifted up and Cain's offering is not regarded? That's something that Really bothers me. And I think it bothers me because um, blatant favoritism is something that describes my childhood, being on the wrong end of favoritism. I think about that, uh, all the wounds I nursed from my childhood, particularly my schooling experience. My parents were sitting in the front row in the early service, and I was quick to say it was not my parents, even though I had a younger brother who deserved worse than Abel. It was because (laughs) of my schooling. And I have these distinct memories, especially of fourth grade. I think of this student named Annie, who was picture-perfect in every way. She dressed perfectly. Her trapper keeper was organized. Her writing was legible. Everything about her just simply disgusted me. And teachers just fawned over her. They drooled over her. They, you know, thought she hung the moon. Well, during my fourth grade year, Annie falls on the playground and breaks her arm. Big deal, and it's like the teachers thought that they heard that she only had weeks to live, the way they just got everything ready for her and put chairs out for her, and it just drew, drove me crazy. Well, we had an assignment in fourth grade. We had to write a story. Everybody writes a story. They illustrate it, and then you bring it to school, and you get it hardbound copy, and then it's in a competition to compare one story to another. Well, Annie writes her story. The rest of us write our stories. Annie wrote, this really dumb story about a penguin that broke its arm. The thing was atrocious. It had the same character development as Goodnight Moon. I mean, it just (laughs) wasn't memorable at all. I wrote a story about a ninja that jumped in a helicopter and flew it into a dragon. And it was spellbinding, if I may say so. Um, The competition comes. Annie wins first prize. The ninja in the helicopter, he doesn't even get an honorable mention. And I've been nursing that wound ever since. And I I think I bring that childhood drama into Genesis chapter 4, and I feel like I understand the Canes of the world, right? They're just trying to do their best, and their best apparently is not good enough. And that's kind of always bothered me about this story between Cain and Abel. Hebrews chapter 11 helps make the distinction between these two brothers plain to us. The difference between these brothers is not birth order. It's not vocation. It's not attendance of this worship service. It's not even the substance of their offerings. It's none of those things. The difference between Cain and Abel is hiding in plain, invisible sight. The difference between these two brothers is is saving faith, as Hebrews 11.4 says. It's by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. The distinction between the two of them was something that was happening in their hearts that we couldn't immediately see in Genesis chapter 4. One of the keys to understanding our Old Testaments is to realize that God's plan of salvation has never changed. We can't think for a moment that when we're in our Old Testaments and we're hearing about Israel, that Israel had a different plan of salvation, that they could be saved if they would obey the 10 commandments and they would bring offerings to God. God would receive that and they would be saved. But then Jesus comes and then we have the New Testament church and we do things differently. It's not by works. It's only by faith that we're saved. That's not true. That distinction is not there. God's people from Genesis to Revelation have only and forever found salvation, not in works, not in best intentions, not in a sincerity to do better next time, not even in expensive sacrifices, but only forever and for all time to respond to God's promise of life with faith. It has only ever been salvation by faith. Our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament, they didn't know Jesus as we now know him. They couldn't see all that would be true about the Messiah and how he would come and live and die and rise from the dead and conquer death itself. Although Hebrews chapter 11 is going to give them more credit for what they know about the Messiah than we do, but all of our Old Testament brothers and sisters knew Habakkuk 2.4 that the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. You bring that back into our story in Genesis chapter 4 and you understand that God, between the lines of the story, must have been commanding Cain and Abel to bring him an offering in response to this promise of eternal life. God was saying to them, the way you respond to this is to bring a sacrifice that demonstrates the saving faith that I give you. In other words, Cain and Abel didn't just wake up one morning and say, I know, let's build an altar, let's grab something that we value, let's put it on it and let's burn it and see if that makes God happy. They didn't come up with this idea themselves. God must have told them, this is how a person is saved. This is how you respond to saving faith in action. And when God says that, Cain reluctantly brings a sacrifice to God as creator, but Abel, from the saving faith that God gives him, brings an offering to God as his redeemer. Abel knew something about sin. He knew something about guilt. He knew something about judgment, but he also knew something about God's promise, that what Abel couldn't do for himself, God was offering to do on his behalf. Abel had an assurance of things hoped for. He had a conviction of things not seen. Abel knew he was to offer a sacrificial lamb. He just didn't know yet that he was going to become a sacrificial lamb. We talk about the faith that God gives Abel, but we need to talk about the sacrifice that happens here in our passage. It is so striking to me that Abel leads this list of faith. You've got the writer to the Hebrews. He's writing to a suffering church, a church that's being persecuted. He could write anything. He could start the list anywhere. And you know one of the most tempting places I would think to start this list of faith would be? It's to skip verse four and go immediately to verse five. In verse five, you have this wonderful story of Enoch in the Old Testament. Enoch was a man who walked with God and was no more because God didn't even let him experience death death he brought him he raptured him into heaven he's one of two men that that has happened to and that would have been a tremendous story to preach to a suffering church tell a terrified church be faithful like Enoch and God might rapture you into heaven put a dollar in the offering plate and walk outside and find two Whatever your ailment, whatever your struggle, whatever your addiction, whatever you're facing, if you will pray with enough faith, God will heal you and he will make you whole. He could have done that. He could have preached that sermon. We could have started with Enoch and we would have been off and running, but he doesn't. Abel leads a list of faith for a church that is staring down the hot, barrel of persecution, a church that we learned in the last chapter, they've already lost property, they've already lost peace, they've already lost their sanity with the persecution that is pressing down on them. And we're going to hear in chapter 12 that even though they have resisted, they have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. In other words, they're about to be killed, but they haven't yet. And Abel is the one that leads the list of faith. He leads it, because all of the people in that church and this church are going to be called to be living sacrifices, but some of us, like Abel, are going to be called to be martyred sacrifices. This is the paradox of faith. This is the tremendous paradox of the faith That God calls us to. In fact, this is so important that Jesus said, before you come to me, before you embrace me alone for salvation, think well of what I am offering you. And that is this, the faith that saves you is the faith that takes your life. The faith that liberates you in every way is the faith that is going to bind you to the will of God the faith that you lead out with that extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one, that might be the same faith that calls you to die at the point of real ones. The faith that is yours for free is the faith that is going to cost you everything. Jesus, he dies on the cross and he removes the judgment of the cross and then he calls us to take up our cross and to embrace the sacrifice that it brings. Faith doesn't become this back pocket creed that we keep with ourselves for intellectual discussions, Ephesians 6. It becomes a shield that we take with us into battle. And the moment people start having saving faith in Hebrews chapter 11, you have bodies on the ground. You have a person like Abel who embraced this free gift of faith, and it cost him absolutely everything. He dies in Hebrews 11. There's a dozen places I want to go about the sacrifice that Abel gives. There's a tremendous promise here in verse 4 that Abel, even though he dies and had no speaking lines in Genesis 4, his blood speaks. It speaks beyond the grave and it speaks a word of justice Jesus said in Luke chapter 11 that the blood of the righteous and the martyrs that were spilled from Abel to Zechariah, they are accounted for and they will be charged against the wicked. Jesus says in Luke 18 that the cry of the elect that comes up day and night will one day be answered, which is to say that I would want to say the blood that is spilled in the cause of Christ speaks a louder word than the powers that spill it. But if we've got four minutes to close with something, I don't want to talk about the blood of Abel. I want to talk about the blood of Jesus. I want to reach our final point, commendation, and what it means to receive the commendation, which is the honor or the praise of God himself. It's right here in our verse, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. I want to close with two related questions. The first one is dense. Did God acknowledge the righteousness of Abel or did God impute righteousness to Abel? Did God acknowledge the righteousness of Abel or did God impute or give righteousness to Abel? In other words, is God, on the one hand, is he recognizing what is already there? Does he see the life of Abel and realize he's a decent guy who demonstrates righteousness and his commendation is just a recognition of what is already there? Or is it something totally different? Is God giving Abel a gift that is not there, namely righteousness that he credits to his account? I don't want to be over dramatic here, but the meaning of the book of Hebrews and the fate of your salvation hangs in the balance of this question. Acknowledgement or imputation, God finding righteousness or God giving righteousness. In other words, is the message of the gospel according to the book of Hebrews, be good like Abel, or is it be clean in Jesus? Which of the two messages do we hear? The writer answers it in Hebrews chapter 12, the very next chapter, verse 22 and following. He says this to the church, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And hear this, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel had no righteousness in himself. He didn't have it, but God gave him this righteousness. And now because of the righteousness that God gives, he accepts his offering, his sacrifice, as evidence of the newfound righteousness that Abel has attained in God. Of this, John Owen, the pastor wrote in the late 1600s, Abel had a divine testimony, both given to his person as righteous and to his duties, that is his sacrifice, as accepted. And this is the line I love. To his unspeakable consolation. The gift of righteousness, the commendation of God, is an unspeakable consolation. It's like a pearl of great price. It's like a person who goes in a field and they find a treasure and they sell absolutely everything they have to obtain the field so that they can enjoy that treasure forever. The faith that gains this unspeakable consolation, this commendation from God is a faith that will lead the church out to embrace and endure things that the world counts absolutely crazy which immediately connects us to the final question. Think about this, ponder this, take this home, and dwell on this question. If Abel knew how his story was going to end, would he still have done what he did? If Abel knew that by bringing a lamb and putting it up on an altar in saving faith to God, that the story would end with his brother putting his body in the ground, would Abel still have offered his sacrifice to God? The entirety of Hebrews chapter 11 presses that question away from the history of Genesis and down into the church to you and I. And it asks us the question today, is the smile of God worth the frown of the world? Is it? Is his commendation worth everything? Is the honor that God brings us in his righteousness, is it worth all that it costs? Is it really worth it? Because if it's not, get out of here. I beg you, get out of here. Do anything but this. Leave this thing before it really costs you something. But if it is, the smile of God and his righteousness in Christ is truly worth everything, then whatever the cost, come deeper in to an unspeakable consolation and find in it a kingdom that cannot possibly be shaken. Let's pray together. Jesus, that's a question that terrifies me. Is the smile of God worth the frown of the world? I want to say it so, but I'm afraid what that might cost me. I want to begin to negotiate what you'll ask of me, and we don't get to do that. We press deeper into the author and the perfecter of our faith, and we trust that you are good and you will do what is right, whether we're Abel or Enoch, we will follow you. Give us that victory of faith, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.